When the histories are written on modern fame and how to achieve it, Harper Waters surely deserves a footnote. He's a highly accomplished dancer with Houston Ballet, but that's not what got him noticed on social media. The combination of a quick-running treadmill in the gym and a pair of towering heels in baby pink made Harper a bit of a sensation. It was the first of a field of films, some heartfelt, some stylish, others blessedly daft, that have won him a serious following on social media and an audience eager to hear him talk about race, sexuality and dance. Harper Waters is our guest today on Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. I'm David Jays, and I'm really interested to discover how he found classical ballet, how he combines curating a busy life on social media with the demands of being a soloist in one of America's most prestigious companies. He's become a proud role model to many who might not fit what is perceived as the mould of classical dance. What does that responsibility mean to him? From the other side of the ocean, Texas may seem a harsh environment for people of colour or for LGBTQ plus people. Yet in Houston, its largest city, Harper has put down roots and flourished. Let's hear him in full bloom. Harper, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Thank you so much for having me. I really love the story of the nutcracker moment that got you hooked by ballet at a ridiculously young age. I think, is this right? You You were just about eight years old. You'd been injured at sports. You were home with a video. How did that happen? How did the nutcracker speak so directly to you? I was about to say, I think as every young boy, but many young boys, I should say, I shouldn't generalize, but sports was the elective or pastime that my parents decided to put me in. It was soccer and t-ball and just anything sports related. It wasn't that I didn't, I wasn't bad at it. I will say that I actually was pretty good. (laughs) There were moments where I was like, oh, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be and this is what I'm supposed to do. But it just wasn't a fit. It never felt comfortable. And I mean, that's me looking back at it. You know, at the time, it just was like when an eight, nine-year-old is around a lot of people and just feels a little bit uncomfortable, you don't really know how to digest that or process that. But I'd always loved to dance and I'd always been a performer in my in my house. And my parents acknowledged that and they understood that. One of the first things my dad ever gave me was he built me my own balance beam. And I would do little gymnastics routines because I was obsessed with Dominique Dawes after watching her in the Olympics. And so there was an understanding from my parents of this kid has to have attention on him. <laughs> and just resonates with 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 music and resonates with performance. And so 
both my parents are former college English professors, and I feel like part of being a professor is you love PBS. <laughs> there was a New York City Ballet special on PBS that was airing, and uh, I had to watch it. And it was New York City Ballet, and from there, I was really hooked with seeing the dancer Albert Evans, and he was dancing Ulysses Dove Red Angels. And I had never seen anything like it. Albert continues to be a huge inspiration. His career at New York City Ballet continues to be a huge inspiration. But I think from there, I got a gift for Christmas of the New York City Ballet production of The Nutcracker. And I think that the, my parents just were like, okay, he liked New York City Ballet and this, let's give him The Nutcracker and we'll see what happens. And Beyond the costumes, beyond the production value, beyond the amazing dancing, it was the snow scene that really was captivating for me because the snowflakes, as they started to enter the stage, there was one snowflake who was Black. And she entered the stage and it was like this extreme contrast of her skin tone against the entire white backdrop and the white costume. And not just her skin color, but she was really good. <laughs> She was very good. And I spent the whole time watching her. And when she would leave the stage, I would try to find her again when she came back out. And amongst the sea of white, ironically, you know, a snow scene, all white, she just stood out to me. And I would get up and it made me want to run around. It made me want to try it. It made me want to dance. I think that she was a permission slip for me to to say I could do this too and I can see myself up there and I didn't know at the time to what capacity I didn't know <laughs> to what magnitude but it was something that I was like oh okay maybe I don't need to kick a soccer ball <laughs> you know maybe I don't need to walk up to home plate and hit a tee ball maybe there's a different path a different opportunity for me uh, and it was the first time that I saw that and so her dancing that one snowflake in the nutcracker was really powerful for me. We're speaking during Black History Month in the US and you've been paying tribute to some of the iconic dancers who have gone before you. Um, that thing of the permission slip that gives you a sense that there might be a place for you in that world, it's still so important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things that I've learned throughout my social media, you know, career, I guess you could say, or path or extravaganza is... Um, <laughs> oh, let's go with is, extravaganza. Yeah, is really that visibility is currency. And I don't think that it has to necessarily be a monetary one. It's just visibility, the power that that holds for people to see that they can do it. They can see other people doing it. I had that with Albert Evans when he strutted down in the finale of Ulysses Dove's Red Angel. That gave me confidence to want to get into a studio. And just even simply saying to someone, your parents or a teacher, I want to step into a dance studio, is a really difficult thing for some reason nowadays, especially being a BIPOC dancer. So... What I try to do with my social media is first I try to lean into what makes me happy because I need that for my dancing. And if that resonates with other people to try it, 
to get involved, to take that first step, then I feel like I'm accomplishing something or I am making a small difference. And so the series on social media that I've been doing, I actually started it last year and just decided to do it again because through research, I've discovered so many more incredible BIPOC dancers in different fields and through, you know, in movies. And it just was my way of saying thank you and and acknowledging them and giving them their flowers because they were doing it first. And I just, I feel like I owe that to them. And I just wanted to do it in a creative, dancey, flashy way so that um, I could increase visibility for the currency that I'm, I'm trying to achieve. Going back to young Harper, like a lot of dancers, you had to make the decision really quite young to pursue this path, to move away from home, to train in in Houston. How difficult was it to be certain enough when you were so young? Oh, gosh. You know, I look back and I feel like I was very dramatic. I was like, you need to let me go. You know, like, <laughs> let me go dance. Like, it, I just thought it was way easier than it probably was. You know, I'm an only child. And unfortunately, I think that there's just not enough knowledge about what it is to be a, a ballet dancer and what a career in dance looks like. And so when someone says, mom, dad, I want to leave home to become a ballet dancer, that's scary. <laughs> I didn't really get that at the time. I thought my parents were holding me back and, you know, like (laughs) ruining my dreams. But in retrospect, I didn't know what it meant to be a dancer. I just knew my path to, you know, being here at Houston Ballet and to pursuing dance has always been a search and need for community, really. And dance just happened to be that vessel of it. And when I was in high school and I came out my freshman year, I was petrified to go back to school, but I knew that I could dance. And I also watched like the real world and Queer Eye and knew that there were gay people in the performing arts. You know, I could put two and two together. (laughs) So it was like this real search to be surrounded by people who supported me and uplifted me. And the dance studio has always been a place where I can turn the volume up to a 10 on who I am. You know, the soccer field was not. The dance studio has been and will continue to be. And so from a young age, I was like, I need to be around that more. So it's equal parts wanting to be the best dancer I can be and pushing my my um, my technique and working really, really, really hard, but also just searching for a place where my identity and who I am can be at its maximum. And so I think that I, I don't know if I consciously was like, I need to leave, but it just was the need to want to dance and the want to be around people that really just pushed and outweighed me not asking. I had to ask. I had to say, let me go here, you know. And I think my parents understood that. And it was a huge risk, especially, you know, they did eight years of college and they met at Brown. And here I am (laughs) at junior in high school saying, can I move to Texas to do ballet? (laughs) It's scary, but I will forever credit my parents and and being my biggest cheerleaders and and just allowing me to have the flexibility and literally and figuratively 
to just try and to expand and um, not uh, hold me back in, in my pursuit of this career. And when you arrived um, in Houston, did it feel like, oh, yes, this is my tribe. I found I found my people. This is where I need to be. Did it did that hit straight away? Yes and no. It was I did two years at um, a performing arts high school. I went to private school from grade one to nine. And that's when I came out and I went to performing arts high school for two years. And after coming here for a summer program, I was supposed to go back to high school. But when I was here, when I got here, I was like, I'm the best dancer in the world. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm God's gift to ballet. Like, I'm insane. And I got here and I had a very rude awakening. And it was like, the dancers in the second company here have to take the summer intensive. And they stood at my bar and I was like, oh, this is what training is. And this is what technique is. And this is what discipline is. And, but I had the reaction of, instead of being, I can't do it. And it's not for me. I'm not good enough. I told myself, I have a foot in the door. Let me really calculate in, dial in and see what can happen. And at the end of six weeks, I was offered a contract in the second company, which was, I also auditioned without telling my parents. That was, I think, just me following my gut and responding so well to the teachers and faculty here, which are incredible. And I just saw what change happened in six weeks that I was like, what could a year do? What could I accomplish in a year? And so, yeah, it was equal part. This is what's right for me. But it was also like, oh, my gosh, this is a whole nother level. And I was really fortunate enough that summer to meet Lauren Anderson, who is still here and She's like my ballet fairy godmother. And when she strutted down the hallway and in the old studios at the time, she just pointed right at me and she was like, you come here. And she gave me the biggest hug. I'd never met her in my life. And she was like, you need to be here. Learning about her career and knowing what she accomplished beyond just being a ballet dancer, that really made me feel like, okay, this is a place for me, this is where I this is where I need to start dancing. <laughs> it was a really special summer those six weeks that really feels just like yesterday, but it was not. It was many, many years ago. <laughs> we don't have to put a number on these things. No, it's no, fine. no, no, no. <laughs> but that's interesting, that thing about visibility, isn't it? Because as a black ballet student or professional dancer, you're always going to be visible. You're always going to be noticeable in most companies or, or ballet schools. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is there a power in that? Or is it sometimes a bit of a, a burden to have that level of attention? Again, I think that it's, it's both. You know, I felt that there was an extreme power to being different and sticking out and saying, okay, well, now that I have your attention, I'm going to show you what I'm all about and I'm going to show you my work ethic. But I really utilized social media as an outlet of, of self-expression and a, a means of discovery. I think that social media and it's like I said, you know, visibility is currency. It was a way for me to discover new people, new artists. I was so inspired by what I was seeing. And through that discovery, I built a following and I had eyes on me. And I think the downside of that is that for some reason, people think that if you have a following or you have a lot of 
eyes on you, you're automatically saying this is how you become quote unquote successful, or this is how you have to do it. And by no means am I saying that if you want to be a professional ballet dancer, you have to strap on six inch heels and run on a treadmill. You know, I think that it was my path in self-discovery and confidence and self-expression. It was fun. I had never had people or friends around me who were like, let's do that. It's two sides. I felt power in the following I had built and the visibility that I was having, but it also came with this sort of downside of people automatically thinking that this is how I was. I'm saying this is the way to be successful, which wasn't the case. For anyone who hasn't seen the pink heels in splendid <laughs> action, just describe that that first video, which kind of launched Harper, the social media sensation on the, on the world. A pair of very high, very pink <laughs> heels and a oh, gym God. treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> turns out to be the recipe for an extravaganza. How did all of that happen? There was a group of boys in the company at the time. It felt like this golden era of, it was like this weird utopia of guys who were my age, who were gay, who were openly gay. And I mean, we were probably so obnoxious at the time. It was really fun. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, one not unfortunately, but one of the boys, he decided to leave the company and he's now has an incredibly successful career dancing in New Zealand. But before he left, he had always wanted to do a drag night. And my friend Reese and I, the boy who was in the video with me, we were like, oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think, you know, we really want to do that. And then one day he walked into the gym where we were and he just had two, two pairs of giant pink heels. And he's like, we're doing this. And so we were working out and it just was one thing led to another where it was like, could you imagine if we went on the treadmill with this and should we do it and let's film it. So we did social media at the time. I didn't have many followers. And so we filmed it and it was very impromptu. I posted it and I just turned my phone off when I reopened my phone. At the time, it was a lot of likes and a lot of, you know, comments. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm famous. What should we do? Do I need an agent? But again, it was that first taste of like, oh my gosh, people are watching. And it was this real wake up call to what the power of social media could do. I look back and I'm like, I know that I could have made a full page of heel videos. <laughs> you know, I could have just gone down that path of yeah. every post would be me and heel. But I don't know if, you know, I don't know if what was the reason behind me not doing that, but I just felt like, okay, now I have people watching. Now I want to bring them into my world as a classical dancer. Now I want to show this side of me. And I've consciously continued that because not that a page of healed dancers isn't, you know, ideal. <laughs> Do you, I mean, you know, more power to you. I wanted to be well-rounded and I wanted it to be I wanted my social media to be a solid embodiment of who I was and who I am and what I do and what I like. And so those videos, I feel like it's like my way of like Lady gaga myself to the top. Like I always think of her first performance on So You Think You Can Dance where she has like stuffed animals on her and she's doing Just Dance. And 
10 years later, she's sitting like front row saying shallow at the Oscars. You know, it's like, that's how I'm like thinking about (laughs) myself. I'm like, use the heels to get to where you want. And I feel like I'm accomplishing that in some sort of way. One of the things you have been doing for a while is your series called The Pre-Show, which opens a window on life behind the scenes (laughs) in a professional ballet company. What has been the biggest surprise for the viewers in that? What, What were they not expecting to see in the life of a professional dancer? I'd say really funny gay people. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just think that, that, like, it first it attracted the dance community. And I think that any performer, dancer, performing artist knows those conversations that happen at the mirror, putting on makeup, laughing, getting ready for a show, that banter. And I think that that was the first time that it tapped into that. But I just think that what catapulted it past just a dance thing was the fact that we were talking about other things that were reality TV or pop culture. It just was hearing our perspective on on things and the humor and the dynamic between all of us. And it really was, in a way, it's like when you see a ballet, you just see the tip of the iceberg, you see the finished product and you have your idea of what that was. And I feel like the pre-show in a sense, was like you have your idea of what a ballet dancer is and says and does, but here you are pulling back the layers and you seeing each of us as individual people rather than um, just the artist or the performer. And I really do think it resonated with people in that in that way. I what I loved about it was that, and I still stand by this, is that I have yet to see a piece of media about a ballet dancer or ballet company in Hollywood or on TV that has made someone say, I want to be a ballet dancer. Every piece of media is dark, competitive, cutthroat, overdramatic, scary. And there has yet to be a piece of media about the ballet world that says, I want to be that. I can, I feel seen. This makes me want to do something. And so I consciously edited that program to be something that was a way for people to feel seen and to want to be a part of something. And it spoke to the community of the dance world. And it really spoke to the community of my company here because, um, you know, I owe so much to the people of Houston Ballet and and the dancers in this company. Because I don't know if I would be able to do everything that I've done. You know, I've danced here for now 11 seasons and... Um, I owe so much to them. My guess, and I might be totally wrong, is that in the past, a company would be a bit suspicious about (laughs) a dancer who had so much else going on outside their work with the company, whether it was, you know, an acting career or a modelling career, let alone a social media career. Did you ever feel that you had to prove that you were still very, very serious about the dancing or have Houston been completely unfazed by this monster they've created? (laughs) Yes. So I always, first and foremost, kept my dancing 
as the top priority. And, you know, the pre-show had sort of fallen off in a sense because one, a lot of the people and my friends in the company who are part of it have gone on to other careers, but also I progressed through the company. My workload increased. That had to be the focus. And the dance will always be my first priority. And so I always had to make sure that I was dancing well. And if I was dancing well, and I could still do the other things and do all the fun things, then we didn't have a problem. I mean, I've been in the game for 11 years now. And so this isn't some overnight story. And so I really applied myself in the studio. But then on our weekends, I was flying up to New York. I was going to LA. I was shooting with these photographers. I was filming my own videos. I was very, very lucky. And when the momentum started to build, I still had to do the dancing well. And I think what happened, and I've had very brief conversations about my escapades, <laughs> you know, with my director here, but he's been so supportive when I would ask, can I go do this? And I think it's because I proved that it never would affect my dancing. And whenever I came back, or I was always here for what when I needed to be, the dancing always was correct. And so I did a I did a Mac cosmetics campaign. I've done Ralph Lauren Pride. I've done Abercrombie. And I had to be back on Tuesday for class at 10. And I will always do that. But that's just because I need to strike while the while it's hot. You know, I need to make the most of this. I will continue to push myself so that I can make both aspects um, the best that they can be. Dancers speak mostly with their bodies, but you've really embraced the opportunity to speak very eloquently about your experience, about being a role model as an African-American gay male dancer. Was it easy to find your voice for that? I don't know. I've, I'm always told that I'm very chatty. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know if that's like only child syndrome or what, but, you know, I don't know. Finding my voice is something that I think, uh, again, it was part of this, the discovery or self-discovery and just becoming the best dancer that I could be. I was very muted as a child, surprisingly. I was very self-conscious and very self-aware. My mother, I always tell her that when I was growing up, she would embarrass me so much because she was so outspoken in calling someone out or saying, excuse me, you're doing something wrong or, and it was mortifying to me. Um, But now growing older, she's my biggest inspiration. My dad is currently a state senator of New Hampshire and politics has always been a passion of his and what, how he fights for things and um, the disenfranchised and marginalized and, and they're both so well-educated. And I think the power maybe of osmosis, you know, it blended through to me. And I'm very grateful to have those two um, to look up to and somehow create this being of, you know, Beyonce has Sasha Fierce. And I say that I'm Sasha Fierce. I feel like that's like my little like alter ego, but I don't know. I'm also very, I'm very 
aware of my inspirations. I loved America's Next Top Model growing up and I was obsessed with the Wendy Williams show. And these are strong, you know, opinionated black women who are articulate and eloquent. And I resonate with that. A lot of the dancers here will tell you that I have taken their catchphrases and integrated it into the Houston Ballet vernacular. And so I I pull from a lot, but finding my voice on social media, finding my voice off stage has just all been, it's been a process of me, uh, you know, just wanting to better myself and understanding that Again, it always comes back to this visibility thing, but it's like if I have people watching and I have a platform, I want to try and use it to the best of its ability, but authentically to myself. And so, yeah, I'm still learning. My mouth has gotten me in trouble before. I'm not saying I'm perfect. There does come with that a responsibility, doesn't there? If someone reaches out to you because they recognise their experience and what you represent and what you've spoken about. Yeah. I guess you have to find a way of responding to that. <laughs> um, you can't just sort of disappear in a in a wonderful starry sequined yeah. uh, blast <laughs> of magic. You you yeah. have to take that part of the role seriously as well, don't you? Yeah. stage which must be quite exciting after the long horrible hiatus of the pandemic how was that because of such a turbulent political time as well Mm -hmm. as everything else without the ability to connect with an an audience physically Mm -hmm. how was that time for you it was difficult it was challenging I learned a lot about myself and I think that I didn't understand how much dance provided for me, you know, I knew that it was a passion of mine, but in not just a physical sense, in a mental way, I really relied on dance for order and to wake up, think about dance when it was for my diet, or I didn't realize how much it encapsulated my day to day. And to lose that was really challenging. And then you pile on the, you know, political and social events and climate that took place over the past two years and continue to take place it was a real process to as a dancer I feel like we step in the studio and we are always told what to do you know the teacher says do plies this way or do this tendu combination like that or the choreographer gives you the choreography and then you respond and then you have artistic liberty to say okay I'm going to try it like this or I'm going to do it like this and the pandemic and with the social and political climate All of a sudden, I felt like I was at home. I had to have the first thought. I had to take that initial action. And I had never been put into that position with my dancing, really. I had all artistic liberty when it came to my social media. I said, I'm going to put that bodysuit on with these heels and that coat, and I'm going to strut down the street, and I'm going to put this music over it. But I I had never really had that with with my dancing. And so to have that, to come back to the studio with that new knowledge and that new perspective, I feel like my dancing really benefited. I entered the pandemic as a soloist in the company and I had been a soloist for about five seasons. I was given this opportunity at Jacob's Pillow by my director here to go to Jacob's Pillow with two other dancers 
And it just felt like this huge opportunity and responsibility to go represent the company and not just dancing, but it was the first time on stage that I had to say something. It was like all that I had learned. And then to come back and we opened with our Jubilee of Dance and then to step into the Nutcracker, which comes back every year and I feel like is always so challenging. And because it's the only thing that comes back into our rep, it's this real, I don't know, it's like looking in a mirror and it's like seeing how you've changed every time. We're very fortunate to have a director who's a choreographer as well. And so a lot of the stuff we were doing was Stanton's and our, and our directors. And so there was a sense of familiarity with it. And so it was exciting to see and watch and try these ballets that were familiar, but with this new perspective. But now that we are opening this week, it's insane. I cannot believe it. We're opening Jewels and with the incredible choreographer Balanchine and Obviously, Balanchine is not our director and it's not, we don't do Balanchine as often as Stanton. This was the first time we had stagers here come in and teach us something that was not entirely familiar to us. And it was a very weird process. I had not had that in about two years to, to stand in front of the room with someone who I didn't know and to say, this is how you do it. And I just feel like the maturity of our company and the level we're at right now is so amazing and so inspiring. And, you know, obviously the pandemic was a difficult time, but to have the opportunity to come back on stage with the magnitude of the ballet like Jules, I mean, it's full company. Everyone's involved. It's really powerful. And I think that we're not stepping on as the stage as 60 dancers. We're stepping on as 60 artists who are about to share what we've learned and, sh and share what we've overcome <laughs> the past few years. And so it's, it's really exciting. I'm excited to put on the costumes and they're really, really beautiful and really sparkly. <laughs> now being a first soloist, because I just got promoted, I have my own little dressing room, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> and so you can all expect lots of content, social media content, because I have all the, I have a lot more room to, to film things. <laughs> it has been so good to speak to you, Harper. Thank you so much. And I have one last question, but it is the question in the podcast title, really. Why does dance matter to you? Oh, my gosh. It's a big one. Um, wow. Dance matters to me. And I feel like maybe I would have answered this a little bit differently a few years ago. But right now... Dance is about a legacy for me. And I think that, I don't know if it's because of Black History Month or just where I'm at right now, but it's just so important to be confident, unapologetic, authentic, um, fabulous at, at what you do. Um, and so boldly and do it because you're not only, do, I'm not only doing it for myself, I'm doing it for so many others. And not that who are about to take my place on stage, but the ones who like Lauren Anderson and the ones like Albert Evans and Arthur Mitchell. And it's just dance is a vessel of 
just showing what we've accomplished and what we can do. And so dance matters to me because I want to continue it. I want to continue that legacy. I want to be a part of that legacy. I want to be a part of that creativity. And I want to be, I also just really want to do it well. (laughs) I don't want to let myself down because I know what I can accomplish. I know what has been accomplished by the people who inspire me. And I know what the next generation of dancers can accomplish. And so dance matters to me to to have everyone succeed. And I feel like if I succeed um, in not letting myself down, then everybody can, you know, succeeds. Yeah, and it's also just really fun to do. <laughs> really fun to do. And I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I can't dance my whole entire life, so. Well, the way that I am right now. So I don't have much time left. Oh, my God. But, uh, oh. yeah. Okay, I was hoping that we wouldn't end on a place of doom, but that's fine. We can do that. You know, maybe not maybe not doom, but um definitely I don't know, it's just dances I I'm just learning that dance is so much more than the leg. It's so much it's so much more than the foot. And this is a shameless plug, but after Jules, we Houston Ballet will open Sylvia, which is a three act ballet. We opened ahead of premiere a few years ago. Surprisingly, I I didn't know it was coming my way, but I get to do the lead in it. It's going to be my first three-act ballet. Love interest of a woman, a lot of partnering, a lot of dancing, a lot of acting. And it's just, that is so special to me right now. And to have that opportunity to build a character and understand that who cares about what the shape of my foot looks like? I'm telling a story. It's a lesson that I'm incredibly grateful for and is so valuable to me right now. And so that's why dance matters to me, to have this dance presents you with the opportunity to learn so much about yourself. So I'm, I'm really excited about that opportunity and I'm very nervous, but I'm also very excited. Harper, thank you so much. Of course, thank you. <laughs> Smart, funny, and fearsomely poised, Harper may be the role model we all need. You can find links to his Instagram and TikTok in our show notes, and also to the RAD's busy social media channels. If you enjoyed our conversation, I really hope you did, then please subscribe, like us, review us, why not, and never miss an episode of Why Dance Matters. Our guest today was Harper Waters. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and our fearsomely poised producer is Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.